When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. Of the Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. And I'm Ethan. Welcome to the show, everybody. Make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast because we have new episodes coming out every Monday. Uh, if you've been around for a while and you have an artist that you'd want us to talk about, let us know by messaging us on Facebook and Instagram. And last, if you love the show, click the Patreon link below. Become a patron. You get episodes early special and special access to our favorite segment, the Bad Music Podcast, where we talk about the six worst songs from our artist that week but this week we're not talking about an artist because we're kicking it back into one of our favorite mini series lucas kick us off it is once again time for our music history little sub series <laughs> and this is this is an episode that we do on the last uh, week of every month and we've just been we've been doing these for about a year now. I think it was in July of last year, Grant, that we did the first uh, episode of this. Yeah, I think I'm, it was. I'm really sure it was last July. And I think that the second episode, Ethan was on, and he joined about a year ago. Yeah, he. So. Yeah, that, it, that's that seems right. It's been a little while. It's although it could have been August. Maybe it was either July or August. <laughs> I don't remember. It's, it's I've slept since then, you know. So yeah, I don't know. it's it's both simultaneously almost a year ago and also thousands and thousands of years ago. Yes, that's, that's so deep, Ethan. That was. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, so we've just we've been slowly moving through uh, the timeline of music. We are still in the Baroque period, but this is going to be our last episode of the Baroque period. And um, normally, when we do these episodes, I like to get a collection of different artists, or to like focus on like a, a specific style. Right. This time, we're going to be uh, doing something a little different. It's almost going to be kind of like a normal episode mm-hmm. where we're talking about one person and in a, an array of styles. When you talk about the Baroque period, you synonymously have to talk about Johann Sebastian Bach. Woo. Ooh, I mean, what a guy. He he's like he's in the uh, the holy trinity of composers, being Bach, Mozart, and Beethoven. Those are kind of those have always been like the big three. Mm. And um, 
I mean, just Bach was the master of the Baroque, not just in the fact that he was the best composer, but that he was the best at every type of Baroque composition. So for those that are just joining us, whenever whenever you say a Baroque composition, yes. what, so this, what does that mean on so a technical bar- level? The Baroque period spans from about 1600 to 1750. In fact, the reason why we say it's 1600 is because that's when the first opera came out, which we've got an episode about that. You should go check that one out. That's great. And 1750 is because that's the year that Bach died. You know that you wow. define an era when the it ends with your death. Brings a day the music died to a whole other level. Yeah. So, um, you know, so it's about a 150-year period. Uh, Baroque doesn't just apply to music. Um, it applies to pretty much all of the art of that period. It can apply to um, painting and architecture and design, uh, like fashion design. It's it, what it really means is um, uh, ordered busyness. If something is baroque, that means that there is a lot going on, but that it is highly organized, systematic chaos, if you will. <laughs> So, uh, and, and as we've heard, we've, we've done a couple of Baroque episodes already. I'm sure that you guys have picked up on, on that aspect, but no one epitomizes that better than Bach did. So let's go ahead and uh, jump into first thoughts. Um, Ethan, when, uh, whenever I bring up the name Bach, what is the initial feeling reaction that you get? This is, this probably sounds, um, I guess a lot of people might be like this, but it might be hypocritical coming from me because I like like older jazz stuff. Usually, whenever I hear Bach, like in any of the big, big three—Beethoven, Bach, any of those guys—and I'm starting to become more cultured now after this podcast. But I would say before listening to it, I probably would put myself at a four, maybe even a three, on the list, just because it's just like the boringness. You know, mm-hmm. and like, oh, it's, oh, it's just, you know, Bach. It's kind of the, you know, the, the stereotypical, you know, like you said, big three. Most people, whenever they hear the big three and they're not like classical music, like real appreciators, they represent classical, which usually represents boring music to a lot of people. Yeah. Luckily, since we've, you know, listened to it and we've already talked, I'm not that way anymore. I would probably put myself neutral now with Bach coming into the podcast and and kind of already knowing like, okay, if we know who he is, I know it's going to be good. But I, I wouldn't say that I have really studied him or listened to him or like with a critical ear yet. Um, but other than like, Beethoven, Bach, you know, um, you know, like I know the name, but I, but uh, we've already listened to the set list, and there was one song where I was like, oh, that song, yeah, that's the Bach song, you know, the mm-hmm. thing that epitomized, you know, like it's lived much past him, you know, uh, when your song is more famous than you, you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
but so I would put myself probably right now at a five, but I would say pre this podcast, I probably would have like rolled my eyes and been like, uh, Bach, I know it's probably technically good, but you know, I don't so care. I'm, yeah, I don't really care for it, but uh, now I'm, I'm a curious five. A curious five. I don't think we've ever had a curious five before. That's a good place to be, though. So, well, what about you, Grant? So, when I think about Bach, I think about uh, a lot of the different uh, techniques that he would use to write. Um, if you guys have heard, uh, Ethan probably not, uh, but if you've heard of Shredmaster Scott on YouTube. He always takes uh, famous metal riffs and turns them into like a Bach version. And he'll go through like how Bach writes music. And uh, the retrograde, the inversion, retrograde inversion um, techniques to come up with new melodies just based off of one melody, which is really cool. And that always fascinated me. The idea of the fugue always uh, fascinated me. It's just like, it is very much ordered business, but it's it's an art and it's a science. It's so weird. I would say I'd put myself at a six, although I don't know a lot of his music. I feel like I have a good idea for his style and what uh, what his music sounds like distinct from other uh, Baroque composers. So it's almost like you learned a lot about Bach before you even really heard any Bach. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really. So, and that's just, that's, that's a thing about a lot of those, you know, real hardcore symphonic metal guys is they'll always talk about Bach and how he has all these cool ways of writing music that, you know, maybe you should listen to Bach and then you'd get better at writing metal. And it's like, you know, there are a lot of really great metal artists who probably don't listen to any Bach, but that doesn't mean that it won't uh, bring inspiration to a genre that, you know, didn't exist 400 years ago. Yeah. So what, so what number would you give yourself then? I think I, I think I would be at a, at a six. Because it, it'd out be of probably respect, out of respect. Yeah, you you have respect for him, but you don't really know the catalog. No. So that's yeah, again. I think these are these are two already very unique um, rankings. Yeah, so that's the usually, only usually don't ever pick fives or sixes for those reasons. I don't. I don't think I could We're put maturing. myself at a five because I know enough. You know. Yeah. But oh well. What about you, Lucas? Um, for me. This is probably going to be the first time that I ever started off with less than a five. Whoa. Because, really? yeah, um, obviously, you know, Bach, every, you know him. You And I had done previous very light uh, kind of surveys of music history. And I always just found that every time I got to Bach, I was very uninterested and I was just like, uh, I would much rather get to the classical period and listen to Mozart and Beethoven. And even in the Baroque period, I was just like, I think I might like Vivaldi and Handel more. It just like, it, it never, I never got it. But at the same time, I was just like, if, if I go 
through the Baroque period in this series and I don't talk about Bach, like that would be a sin. Yeah. Because right. he's universally, and I was just, and I always just like, maybe I'm just like missing something. Maybe I just don't understand it yet. And so I, I picked this episode on the faith that once I really understand and take the time and study it, that maybe then I'll uh, be like, okay, now I get this. But um, I would say, yeah, I was a bit even less than a five or four to where I was just like, I'm, I was kind of mm-hmm. amb- ambivalent and a little bit of a negative emotion just because was I preferred the other people more. So now going through it, I guess, what would you say even musically? And I hope we're not jumping the gun here because I always <laughs> do want to hear about his story. What would you say, even before, what would you say like the biggest differences between Bach and Handel were? Because we've listened to Handel. Well, what I've learned that made Bach so distinct from everyone else is that remember when we did the uh, concerto episode and I talked about um, kind of the the different musical styles between countries? How we have Italian that is, because of just the nature of its language, is very lyrical, even in its instrumental music. Mm -hmm. It's very graceful. It's very – the instruments are composed in such a way that it's mimicking a voice singing. Yes. And particularly that it's going to mimic a very – melismatic which you you remember that that golden vocab term for melisma no (laughs) no (laughs) it's when you take a vowel and you just stretch it out like all the medieval music i remember yeah where they take they take uh you know four minutes to say hallelujah yeah Yeah. because every (laughs) syllable is yeah and and uh in Italian, that's very easy to do because Italian and Latin are very similar languages. They come from the same place. Um, it's very easy to do that. How as we uh, compared it to German, German is a much more consonant-driven language. There's less vowels. It's why it's the reason why German is often considered a harsh-sounding language. It's because of the fact that you don't have all these nice vowels connecting everything. And yeah. so because of that, you can't write the type of beautiful vocal music in German just because it's it's just the words. You can't get that kind of – yeah. Um, like think back to Beethoven's Ninth uh, Symphony. When he gets to the singing part, it's like every note almost has its own syllable. Like every syllable has its own note. They're not stretching um, syllables throughout multiple notes. Yeah. Think of the brum, dish, bill, bill. I mean, this isn't the real words, but I'm like, just, yeah. it gets to that part. It's every single note is a different syllable. Right. Because it's just, that's just the way you had to do it. It's why it took a very long time for opera to catch on in the German language. It didn't really get that way until the Romantic period. Even if you were a German composer, you still wrote operas in Italian because it was a much easier language to write music for, vocal music. So um, so you in the Baroque period, you very much could tell what nation every composer was in by the type that they composed. What Bach was so good at is that 
he could he was a master of all of it he was a master of the italian style a master of the german style there was all we didn't really talk about it that much but there was a french style those were kind of like the three main styles of the baroque period those were the three musical centers and not only was he the master of all three of them but he knew how to combine them Hmm. to where you didn't have something that sounded primarily italian he could marry the lyricalness of italian music and the rhythmic um complexity of german music and Hmm. somehow made them work together no other composer in the broke period really figured that out the way that he did and so what you find in his music is not only are is it so brilliantly melodically conceived but there's also such a um such an intense um mathematical complexity to what's going on underneath like think back to um think back to Vivaldi's that four seasons that first uh, spring the bum ba da 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 mm-hmm. yeah Think of just how, like, even though, yes, it had moments of um, moments of virtuosity, it, you didn't have these complex layers fighting against each other. It was very straightforward. Yeah. Where, compare that to Handel's concerto that had a much more, it, it sacrificed on very catchable, easy melody for a very interesting um, rhythm. Right. And it was almost the rhythm was the musical component, the main musical component. Um, now imagine that those two got blended together and you couldn't tell one from the other. That's what Bach really was so good at. Hmm. And he not only was such a great composer, but he had this this brilliant mind to where he he made music so astonishingly quick so let's talk a little bit about box life because it's gonna my respect for him really went up whenever i learned about this so he had many careers in his life but his main career was as a church cantor and what that means is that there was a church that was like the main church in a city called leipzig in germany For those of you that don't know, Bach is German, stayed in Germany for his whole life, unlike Handel, who traveled to Italy, lived in Italy for a while, then lived in England for a while. Um, Bach was not a globetrotter. And because of that, he really wasn't that well known in his time. Hmm. Um, He's he's someone that his fame grew about 100 years after he died. Oh, so he was a nobody in his life? Oh, yeah. Not even a nobody, but he was considered third rate by the people that knew him. <laughs> wow. When he applied for the cantor ship in Leipzig, he was the fourth choice. And he okay. only got the job because the first three said, no, I don't want it. Well. And really, the reason was is because he was far ahead of his time. He was so radical in what he did that because they were always, why can't you just write it like Vivaldi writes? Why can't you write it like Handel likes? Or how Handel writes. And so, and also... He, he was Prague. 
Bach was not a big personality. He wasn't someone that was aggressively pushing for success. He was just someone that loved to write music. Good. Mm. And so, so many of his great pieces were not actually written for anybody except himself. Nice. And Mm. he wrote a lot of his best material during phases where he was just like, I just want to see if I can do it. Oh, yes. Yes. I don't know if that's the mindset to have, but that's a good mindset. (laughs) (laughs) So, but in his, in his cantorship, so his schedule consisted of being the uh, main music director for uh, Sunday worship, which was a very big deal because you were not allowed to play the same thing twice. You had to, no, you had to write something new for every Sunday. And not just any old piece. Uh, he had to write uh, something called a cantata, which I'll talk about a little bit more when we talk about the types of musical styles we're going to look at in this episode. But a cantata usually lasted like 30 to 40 minutes. Wow. And it's, it's a full symphonic and vocal piece. Like, these are no joke. He had to write one of those every week. Not just every week. But he had to write it in a day because he would usually have Monday to write it, Tuesday at maximum to finish it, and then Wednesday they start rehearsing it until Sunday. Because usually Tuesday he was writing all the duplicates of the scores to give to all the different musicians. Dang. So, and not only that, but he had to... um, give music lessons all through the day he was the one that was responsible for teaching all the vocal and instrumental players in the school he had to teach latin he uh also had a uh, a consistent um partnership with a uh a local i guess kind of that t- that era's pub where he got to write a lot of secular music and he performed at that every Friday with new music. And on top of that, he had 12 children that he had to take care of. Um, constantly, having, constantly having to go to town council meetings because he was employed by the state. Oh God. And poor man. So he, it's it's a wonder that he even slept at all. Yeah. Probably didn't. He's probably one of those uh, freaks of nature that didn't need to sleep. Yeah, maybe. But he uh, he had to he did that for about three years of having to write. He wrote like fifty four cantatas a week. Oh yeah, he also had to write new music for every wedding and every funeral and mm-hmm. every town council election. Every election. <laughs> this guy's a machine. Yes. Oh, and man. usually when you have someone that has to write that much material in a short amount of time, that the quality suffers. Mm-hmm. But if anything, that actually made him better. Well, usually he's got to refine his method. It makes sense why he has so many different writing techniques. Mm-hmm. He also had this drive to, like I said earlier, to master every single form of music, not just of his period, but
but of previous periods. Good man. He he decided to write uh, Gregorian chants. He wanted to write masses. He wanted to write madrigals. Like he studied all the greats that came before him as well, which was not super normal to do in that period. No, it would have been difficult to study. Oh yeah, and not only that, it was just like you know nowadays it's very well looked upon to study the 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 legends of the past. But in the oh, book, yeah. it was all about moving forward. That music's done. We don't write that anymore. We got to write something that's new that's never been done. And the way that Bach wrote stuff that was never been done, that had never been done, was to combine all of those elements. He, he was, did the Beatles. Yeah, he was a musician that I could find that was very intentional about blending styles. You know, take take. When I'm writing this cantata, let's take a little bit of Italian uh, symphonic elements. Let's take a little bit of the overly melismatic uh, medieval music. Mm -hmm. Let's throw in um, some modern Baroque uh, style to it. Like he just, that was the way that he thought. And that was not normal. So is that why you would say he's like ahead of his time and nobody really liked him? Yeah, because he wasn't playing to the norm of what Baroque style was. But what's so funny and kind of what makes it almost uh, like almost hypocritical was that he played exactly the way that the Baroque style called for. He just did it (laughs) way better than everyone else. Yeah. He actually did not ever break any of the Baroque rules of songwriting, which is something that you would highly contrast with someone like Beethoven, who set out to break all of the classical rules. It's why he was such a revolutionary, is that he would do stuff that was just like, you're not supposed to do that. Where Bach would constantly give himself challenges to do the most outrageous things that still fit neatly in the rules of what that particular piece had to have. Mm-hmm. He never broke the rules. It was almost like he you couldn't put him in a box even though he was in the box. He put himself in the box intentionally to see show you that the box really didn't exist. <laughs> box, box. But at- <laughs> I I I I lost you on that one, but okay. <laughs> but but did he know that he was doing this, or was he just doing his own thing? Oh, he knew. He because you can you can see the genius in the way that he would almost, in a way, write himself into a corner musically, to where you think the only way he can get out of this is is to break the rules of that type of composition, and yet he will have very subtly earlier in the music sprinkled in foreshadowing of what he was going to do. And then when you do it, he when he gets out of it by playing with the rules, you're just like, oh man, that was brilliant. And, and it makes sense. It's not out of left field because he actually teased it earlier in the, in the piece. He does a prog. Yeah. Man, what a guy. And so, it was just, yeah, uh, he he played by the rules, but he played those rules better than anyone else did. Good. He he truly took 
every single type of composition in that era and pushed it as far as it could go. It's what you do when you're Buck. Mm-hmm. So why did nobody... So how old was... I guess, first question, how old was he whenever he, like, became the whatever the i guess the church music director i think he was in his mid to late 30s at that time well what all was he doing before then did he study anywhere like prestigious no not really um he didn't have a particularly the most famous thing that he had done was that he was the um i'm trying to think of the word for it um he was the the kapellmeister for a very uh, unimportant prince in the backwater country of Germany. Uh, so, like, someone that, like, you really, when you heard him, you're just like, oh, okay. Like, kind of like the equivalent of the the mayor of a small town. Yeah. So, that was kind of the most prestigious job he ever had. He wrote a lot of his famous pieces during that period. And he was, he was happiest during that period because that was like the one um, master he had that really loved and appreciated his music. Yeah. But then he married someone that hated him and forced him out. <laughs> okay. And <laughs> kind of just turned the entire court against Bach. And so he's like, well, dang, now I gotta, I gotta... I guess I'll go be a cantor in Leipzig. <laughs> and that was that was a a fairly unhappy time cuz also right about that time his first wife died. Dang. And he was broke. Didn't he was the fourth choice at the job that he went to. He knew that how good he was, but he also wasn't so prideful in himself that he boasted about himself. In his mind, it was all for God's glory. He was a deeply, deeply religious person. Hmm. And he just, his mindset was always, I'm going to write this the best I can because God deserves my best. So was he a nice person? Yes. The only time that he was cantankerous was when he demanded perfection from his music. Yeah. But it wasn't... it. Again, you, you, it wasn't because he was a, you know, a narcissist. He wasn't a Vivaldi. Mm -hmm. Who is the, who's the person that I have in my brain of like sitting at the piano and banging it and like throwing the music all over the room and who's that? That'd be Beethoven. Okay, yeah, that's. <laughs> I was like, man, I, there's a person in my brain. <laughs> it's not the music that's imperfect. It's your voices. Yeah. So he's he would he would demand, but again. He, it wasn't because he deserved yeah. it, but, he, but it was like because God deserved it. So, yeah, it wasn't for his own pride, which someone like Beethoven or Vivaldi or even Mozart, that, that's what they would be known for. They had a very inflated ego about themselves. Bach never did. He was, mm -hmm. he was always known outside of the theater to be a very pleasant person, although he never got along well with the Council of Leipzig and um, with the town council because he did not like how they would try and stifle his creativity. That's fair. 
it was a it was a town of squares and again he was very forward thinking and very musically advanced and because of the fact that he wouldn't just write the music the way that they asked him to that they never appreciated him hmm. he would constantly write stuff that they were just like that's not what we want and he's just like in, in his mind he's just like but it's better than what you want it's <laughs> it's it's the equivalent of showing someone that only listens to top 40 a, a Bach piece. And they're just like, this is boring. I don't want to listen to this. Mm. And you're just like, but musically, this is so much more enriching. This is, there's so much beauty going on here. Yeah. Uh, I just want what's on the radio. Okay. Yeah, that stinks. Yeah. It does. So it was really... Uh, maybe maybe a hundred years is a bit. I think because I think it was in like the eighteen twenties, the eighteen thirties, that um, his music was really rediscovered, and that's when the respect for Bach and the when he became kind of like the big titan that he is now really yeah. started to happen. But he did not experience really any success at all in his lifetime, and that was I think that was the most shocking thing that I learned throughout all my research. Yeah, because I always just assumed that he was like the most well-known composer of that time, and there were composers like there were fellow composers that like if they're on record saying this like if you want to know who the best is, it's Bach, but yeah. you know that just it never got around to the public. There would be people that would come because what he was particularly known for was as a keyboardist that was that was his specialty instrument that he was a a virtuoso at and even more specifically the organ yeah probably there probably has never been a greater organ player than bach and he knew better than anyone how to compose for it because the organ is a very difficult instrument to compose for not just because if you have to figure out how to make that huge abrasive sound pleasant but also it's not just a big keyboard you have to use all four limbs to play that thing yes because there's tons of foot pedals it's and there's also there's the little sliders to get the different sounds mm -hmm. and he knew how to get the different sounds out of it while he was playing it changed the sound Mm-hmm. It's likely that in the church services, wherever there was organ, that he was playing it because he did not trust anyone else to play it. That's awesome. That is awesome. And and honestly, it was kind of one of those things where like no one really wanted to. Yeah. It's like <laughs> no. when Bach's there and you and especially when Bach is looking at you as you're playing it. Could you imagine that pressure? Well, but everyone thought that he sucked, right? Well, again, the 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 people that were in authority thought he sucked. But you think the musicians were like, yeah. oh, the musicians had to. I I can't have any proof of it. You know that they had to have known because they have an appreciation for music, and you have to assume that they're playing this, just going, "Wow, this is incredible." Yeah. Right, it's kind of like how you don't hear Jacob Collier on the radio. 
But if Jacob Collier said, hey, I want you to be on this song of mine, you would immediately start sweating out of every pore in your body thinking, man, <laughs> it has to be perfect. You know? He was like, he really was the, like, the original, like, composer's composer. Yeah. Wow. The guy that, that was truly great, but, like, didn't hit mainstream. But everyone that was in the know that really appreciated music all recognized that he was the best. Yeah. Man. Can you imagine they had any idea that hundreds of years later we would still be... I mean, it makes you think about the artists that we have now. Mm-hmm. You know, hundreds of years later, are we going to still be talking about Bruno Mars, you know? Yeah. It's, you just never know. True. Yeah. And and that's the thing also that, and, and we do have this because it's from Box Own Words, that he ne- he didn't write for posterity. He didn't write to be remembered hundreds of years later. Um, whenever you're writing that much stuff, yeah, and again, there's there's a, about like the final like twelve years of his life, he entered into a a particular phase where he, um, he was writing these these challenge songs in these styles, like because he was not Catholic, he was Lutheran, and so he had no reason to write a Catholic mass. But he decided he wanted to do it just to see if he could. And he wrote probably the best mass, at least that I've heard so far. <laughs> wow. I mean, you listen to it and you're just like, oh my gosh, this is a mass? <laughs> and he, just, he decided, oh, I'm going to... I'm going to do uh, I'm going to do these variations on on another person's work which um variations just means pretty much you do it's like that day and age's cover song. Hmm. He's like I want to do a variation on this and he like surpasses the original in every way. <laughs> he, oh my god. Very, very he wrote operas, he wrote concertos, he wrote oratorios, he wrote cantatas. He wrote fugues and every single possible thing that you could think of, past and present, at least his present. And yeah. so he was a he was a true student of music. He he wanted to know everything that came before and everything that was going now and to figure out what was coming. And the last 12 years of his life was him almost creating like a uh um a musical uh, encyclopedia and just like I'm going to make the best version of every single style there is just to see if I can and these were not songs again that he was commissioned to write these were songs that he just wanted to write how do you do that how do you write that much good stuff whenever you have that many kids and that many other like, yeah. things going on I just think that you have to be someone that doesn't need sleep that's the only way that I can rationalize it in my brain. I guess he got he got remarried. Yeah, he did. Married a soprano singer. He uh, he could have really nice lady trained his kids in the uh, art of music making and then commissioned them. You never know. Well, well, uh, one of his sons ended up actually becoming a fairly um, famous composer. Wow. Okay, well, there you go. Uh, 
Well, I think it was like, I can't remember, but it's like, it's two initials and then Bach. And anytime you see the two initials and then Bach, that's like his son or maybe even his grandson. I can't remember. But so he kind of did. Let's, before we go to the next segment, let's talk a little bit about some of the uh, styles that we're going to hear. Okay. Because we do have some that we've already heard. Like we've got, um, we've got two concertos that we're going to be hearing. Um, but we've also got a couple of new forms, particularly the cantata and the fugue. Oh, the fugue. <laughs> so a cantata is very similar to an oratorio in the fact that it is a um, a staged play rather than an acted play. So it's it's telling a story but there's not actors acting it out. Um, but the difference between cantata and oratorio is that a cantata, most of the time, and there are exceptions, but most of the time is not created for entertainment purposes. They're re- they are religious most of the time. There are secular cantatas, but they're usually performed as part of the Sunday worship service. And because of that, you can't make a giant two-hour, three-act piece. So cantata, the main characteristic is that they're one act. Hmm. But usually that act will have like five or six movements in it. More condensed. Yes, but in in the same way that like when we listen to Messiah, there were clearly individual Mm -hmm. songs. But there were three acts that separated it, and oratorios, even though they are re- they were religious, were still for entertainment purposes. They weren't played as part of a worship service. Yeah. You would go on a on a Friday night and pay money to go see it. Where a cantata, usually that was not the case. So cantata, one act, story. Uh, like a mini opera. What else the time on that? Like how long would a cantata be? Usually about 30 minutes. That would be like if on a maybe a longer one. So like 25 to 30 wow. minutes. Wow, yeah. 40 if you really did a huge extravagant one. Yeah. So wow. Bach wrote like 56 of those a year. <sighs> literally would write them in about a day and these are full like symphonic works it's not just a couple instruments and some voices big chorus a huge array of instruments and he would hand write all the music yes and not only that he had to copy them for every single person that was going to be performing yeah well, and different parts for each person Yep. Because, yeah, he probably wrote the grand staff, like the the, yeah. the thing that had everything on it, and then copied to the individual sections. And he, it is rumored that his, his children helped him with that part. Yeah. Because it would not have been possible on his own, no matter how little he slept. Um, That's literally so, one day to write the grand staff 
probably a whole another entire day just to copy it over. Mm-hmm. And then Wednesday, you start rehearsing. Golly, it takes me so long to write three minutes of music sometimes. Imagine. I think that's like the it's it's the um, rise to the challenge mentality where it's just like maybe this is I mean like I have no choice this has to be done by Sunday yeah or exactly. I lose my job yeah kind of like uh, when you wait to the last minute on your term paper it's yep, like, and well, then you're a genius yeah and then suddenly and you're and you have you have three months to ride it but you can all but you know it, it's it's like if you if you had three months of a due date and you wrote all of it in the first day and you turned it in the next day, you'd be a genius. But whenever you wait to the last second and turn it in, even though you only wrote on the day, you're a failure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just write yeah. it all in one day. Uh-huh. And you know there's always another week. Yeah, so I would say probably of any genre that he wrote in, like the cantata was kind of like his great piece that he wrote mm-hmm. and then uh we're also going to be talking about the fugue um the fugue was something that i was very confused on what it was for a long time so fugue is essentially a musical structure in which you have what's called a main theme a main melodic idea mm-hmm. and then as you play it it's going to start layering upon itself so you hear the initial melody, and then the initial melody starts going off on a counterpoint melody while a different instrument, or if, say, you're on the keyboard, a different hand starts playing the exact same melody, but perhaps in a different – in a harmony in a harmony or in a lower octave. Yeah. It's, um, the way I understand it is fuse are just multiple counterpoint harmonies. Yes, done in a lot it's, of different ways. It's it's like literally like we have six lines and we use them all in weird different ways. Sometimes it's the bass. Sometimes we do it reverse. Sometimes we do it mm-hmm. in a weird different harmony. Uh, fugues are like the like Grant's gonna freak out. Like you you notice so many things. You're just like oh my gosh that line's back. Oh my gosh that line is actually a harmony of this line. Yeah. Oh my, wait no it's not. It's this yep. thing. Oh my god no it's not. The fugue is kind of the ultimate, um, the ultimate test to see if you are a great melody writer because it all hinges on how good your main theme is. And an arranger. If your main theme stinks, it doesn't matter how good your arrangement is. Yeah. It doesn't work. But also, you could have a great theme, and if you don't arrange it right, it also won't work. And particularly, the Germans were the only ones in the Baroque period that really mastered the fugue because of the fact that it, it required a lot of rhythmic complexity. You don't really have a lot of Italian fugues. And yeah. so because of that, obviously Bach was was incredible at it. And so the fugue was one of his particular shining um, areas of musicality. It was, it was, I would say probably the fugue and the cantata are kind of like the two areas where Bach very obviously surpassed everyone around him. <laughs> like they he took first. the fugues to a completely another level. Uh, the yeah. Fugue, the fugue is his. Mm-hmm. It's definitively his. Yeah. And I would say the cantata is definitively his as well. 
No one, no one wrote cantatas like him. Man, what a guy! Mm-hmm. What a guy. Let's get All to right. the music. I'm ready. All right, we'll go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the six songs by Bach that we have chosen. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We've been talking about Johann Sebastian Bach in our most recent and current music history episode where we're in the Baroque period still. And now it's time to get to our six songs. If you want to listen to these songs, which you definitely should, there's a link in the description that goes to a Spotify playlist that has not only these songs, but all of the songs from all of the previous episodes. Be sure to listen to these songs. And with that... We should get to our first song on the list. Lucas, what are we listening to? All right. So the first is going to be uh, the first movement of a cantata. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really try my best to say this. I did take a little bit of German, so I, I, I feel like I kind of know how to pronounce these words. Wacket auf rufs und die Stimme. That's pretty good. So that, tra- that. that translates to Awake, the voice is calling us. Oh, that's cool. Let's talk a little bit about the history of this song. So um, another thing about cantatas is that they had to write in the same theme of what the Bible reading was going to be about that Sunday. So it's like a score, kind of. Yeah. It's it's like it's like when church services now, if they're going to talk about, um, you know, um, the power of the church and then they decide to do a song about church, yeah. particularly um, or, you know, this, you know, we're going to talk about healing and let's do a song about he- like to reinforce that. Yeah, that's I mean, this is like the originator of that concept. Although instead of just trying to find a song that was already written, he just writes a new one. <laughs> so what are the lyrics? Is there, there are lyrics to this? There are. And he so, wrote all the lyrics? No, he didn't write all the lyrics, although he would um, arrange the lyrics where he needed if he needed to um, fix, make something more melodically pleasant. But he did have a any time that he did lyric based uh, music, he did have a, a co writer that did the words. Was there anyone in particular, or did it just change? Um, he had a couple of people that he particularly worked with, but I could not tell you right now who they were. Probably not a big batch of people that are willing to spend an entire day writing a, a complete cantata. Yeah. <laughs> The pool is is uh, very shallow on the list of lyricists that yeah. want to write a complete thirty minute song in one day, every yeah. day. So um, this particular cantata is um, about the uh, parable that Jesus tells in the book of Matthew about the uh, the ten uh, brides that are waiting for the groom to return, and. Um, how he tells them to be ready because I could be coming at any point to have your lamps or your lanterns ready. Mm-hmm. You have the five wise brides and the five foolish brides, ones that keep their lanterns lit and the others that don't. And so when the groom comes, the ones that have their lanterns are ready for him. The ones that don't miss him. 
And so that's the um, that's the general um, starting point for this uh, for this cantata. Also, um, what he does with this one is that he actually takes a Lutheran hymn with the same name, and he takes because whenever you have a Lutheran hymn. Um, it's another type of church music that whenever the Protestant Reformation happened and they got rid of the idea that, you know, music should only be watched and not participated in. Yeah. They they wrote songs in ways that the whole congregation could sing together. So there would be these very simple melodies. And so what he does is that the spine of the entire cantata is based around this Lutheran hymn melody. And so when the vocals come in, that's what they're singing. But of course, then he takes it and he starts to transform it and adds, of course, all this great stuff around it. Yeah. So, um, I mean, what a it's got a bombastic entrance. Mm-hmm. And now that you know the meaning of the song, notice now how this sounds like a wedding march. Yeah. It did sound like a march of some kind. And not only that, but the intro is phrased in groups of 12, which is meant to represent the striking of midnight. Ooh. Ah, he's doing a Meshuggah. <laughs> Meshuggah did a Bach, I should Meshuggah say. did a Bach, that's right. That needs to be the name of a book. <laughs> Meshuggah did a Bach. <laughs> speaking in tongues oh my goodness yeah that sounds like the quirky character from like a, a sebastian stan movie or yeah. something mr <laughs> mashuga did a buck mr mashuga did a buck so i mean but it's just like it's there's there's this extra level of detail yeah of he's and again it's just amazing that you've got all these things to consider and he literally wrote this in a day yeah. And this is just yeah. the first movement of six. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and, yeah, because there's, yeah. I mean, there's just an organ in there somewhere, yeah. There's so much going on in this first movement. Can you imagine going to church and this is the music that you listen to? It's new every time. And it's, yeah, you never know what you're going to get. You just You just walked into Sunday or into church one Sunday and they start playing this. I mean, just it it makes you just go, dang, we're missing out. Yeah. So, so yeah. So you've got the you've got the the chorus that comes in. Um, you've got the you've got the female and the male voices. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an interesting note that um, there's about a point halfway through where the male voices all of a sudden get very excited. And they kind of almost take over the song. And it's at Symbolizing. the point yeah. it's at the point in the text where they're saying that the groom has come. Wake up, bride, he's here. Ooh. Yeah. And then if you also notice, we have this this Alleluia section that becomes very reminiscent of medieval music. Very melismatic. So even in a piece like this, you have him mixing previous 
uh, Arab music and with uh, with a modern Baroque approach. Man, yeah, that's then, so there is like scoring though. So he's so he's this is like legitimate like scoring of a of a piece to fit the mood of something. Yeah, because like being like, oh, let's represent midnight. Like that's a very like you know, kind of a highbrow. At that time, it was probably genius. Now it would be like, oh, 12, you know. But at the time, it's just like everything pointing in the direction of the story, you know. Consciously and unconsciously. Yeah. And then just just musically, this is so well written. That that main March theme Yeah. is just, it's so good. So yeah, they do a good job of just bum 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 ba like you feel that pulse the entire time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then yeah, you've got the you've got the I think that there's the oboes or the clarinets coming in with that mm-hmm. little solo line and it just the whole thing is just works together so well and it's just a, it's such a brilliant composition. It, it really is kind of that systematic chaos because there's sort of the backbone of the composition doing that march. There's the very flowy melodic chords, and then there's all of these other, I guess, melodic instruments doing little, I guess you'd call them little licks yeah. all over the place. Mm-hmm. You know, and kind of playing off of the melodies of each other. And yeah, it's just, there was a lot of. A lot of moving parts that all don't necessarily drown each other out, which is really uh, difficult, I can yeah. imagine. Well, do you guys have anything else to add? I, I do mean, not. It's pretty straightforward. I mean, it that's, that's going to be the thing about a lot of these songs is that even though they're so brilliantly composed, yet there's so many subtle uh, mm-hmm. details underneath that Honestly, you're not even going to know that they're there unless you, like, are a trained composer. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a lot more respect just for this first song just by – because my first listen through, I was like, yeah, this song's good. I was, I was kind of like, yeah, what a good song. But knowing, like, here's what the story was about, here's all the little things in the composition that lead up to that, like, that's stuff that you'd have to study to know. Like, yeah. You'd have to study the piece and, like, pull that out together. It's not – just really obvious uh-huh yeah because i mean i i took another one of my college courses to learn about bach and all these all this music and it was just it was also I was just like i would have never known this yeah had i not had someone that was very experienced in this explaining it to me so it was very helpful uh, yeah, let's go ahead and move on to the second song, which is a concerto, which y'all are now familiar with what concertos are. This is a uh, concerto for violin. This is actually the third movement of this particular concerto. Um, quiz question, do you remember what the typical uh, style for concerto movements are as far as tempo? Uh, fast, low, fast? Yep. Ha-ha, <laughs> got him. So, <laughs> I was just, you know, I wanted to pass the quiz. Yep. Usually, even you could almost call them really medium slow fast because the third movement is usually always faster than the first movement. Usually. 
that's not like a a first a set in stone rule, but it might as well be because that's what just about everyone did. Hmm. The, third um, the fastest. Yeah. So this particular movement is what's called rondo form. You once you start getting close to the classical period, you don't even just write concerto movements like you start to have these specific forms that's where the term sonata and um fantasia and all these other terms start coming in is uh these are specific rules of how to structure a particular movement of a piece hmm. and so um this particular movement is in rondo which means that you have a an a section that you will constantly return to. In this instance, it's that and the rule of Rondo is that when you come back to it, you have to play it the same way every time. You can't you can't like recontextualize it. Like it's meant to be a return to something constant. But then you have these in-between sections where that's your chance to do something wild and crazy yeah Hmm. that that a section is the anchor that constantly pulls you back so now that you pointed out that changes that changes the the way that i even perceive the piece yeah so it's it's not just he's lazy and just going oh i'm just going to write it the same way every time that's that's those are the and again bach was not a rule changer yeah he was a rule breaker He's just like, if that's the way Rondo's played, then that's the way I'm going to do it. Where Beethoven would be like, yeah, it's Rondo form, but I'm going to play it different when I go to the head because I want to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Beethoven, (laughs) it's like, yeah, Bach Bach is like, I mean, I didn't technically break the rules, guys. Yeah, it's this is allowed. (laughs) You just didn't know it could be done in this way yeah. like you even think about like the, i think it's the third time it goes to a section he like takes the dynamics down yeah he's like, like i didn't technically break the rules guys i didn't change everything melodically is the same but i did change the dynamics yeah, you didn't say i couldn't change the dynamics yeah so th- <laughs> those are the ways that bach he would always it was like he almost like he was really good at finding loopholes yeah <laughs> where he was he exploited the 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 rules to where he it's like if you were to have a lawyer bring it to you in court, yeah. you'd be like, technically, I didn't do anything against the rules. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing is the audience would still recognize it as um, Rondo or whatever. Yeah. Like the, the audience would still be like, oh, yeah, that's that. Whoa, it's just being done so differently. That makes sense why like the more highbrow aristoc- aristocrats would, would be like, uh, he's like, you know, he's getting mm-hmm. us on technicalities. Yeah. Um, and so then, yeah, so you've got that Rondo theme. And then what's really cool about this piece is that you have these series of solos and each solo gets crazier than the last one. Mm-hmm. Solo it's, sections. It's almost, it's the hangar 18 of its time. <laughs> this, this is what I thought about when, um, we first talked about concertos and I was like, ah, oh, concertos are a performance piece. This is what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> This and uh, the one coming up as well. Yeah. Um, but I mean, just, yeah, you've got those first, and then you've got that extended uh, solo where he's doing that. Yeah. Just, like, <laughs> oh my gosh. And I was, uh, when I, when I did my little, uh, my little 
college course, he, uh, the instructor was explaining just like, it's not just difficult because of how fast it is, but that he's also making the violin player play multiple strings at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> because it's, it's not concerto for two violins. Cause there's going to be times in those solos where it sounds like there's two violins playing together. It's actually one, they're just being forced to play two or more strings at the same time, which is technically possible, but among the most difficult things you can make a violin player do. <laughs> he said it was likely whenever he handed this piece to his violinist that they were like, oh, no, <laughs> I, I don't know if I can do this. What do you want from me? <laughs> yeah. So he didn't play the violin himself or did he? He did, but he wasn't a virtuoso at it in the same way that some of the best violinists of that time period were. But he, He, but again, in order to adequately compose for, like if you're going to write a violin concerto, you better at least rudimentally know how to play a violin pretty well. Mm -hmm. Otherwise you're not going to know how to write a great violin piece. It'd be like if someone tried to write an epic guitar solo, but didn't know how to play guitar. Like at all. Yeah. It just it wouldn't it wouldn't work. A a person that plays guitar is going to have a better sense of how to write a solo. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't someone that like he would get on the violin and everyone would go, "Oh, look at him play." <laughs> so, but I mean, yeah, it's it's an it's an astonishing work of skill as well as again just this is a prime example of him following the rules, but at the same time, like kind of winking and just going, now watch what I'm going to do with these rules. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, you've got that great little uh, stutter right before it goes into the very last a section where he <laughs> kind of, he kind of hangs in and does that. about it and Into it. And it's just, and he also, it's like the strength of that melody is that he doesn't have to change what it is but when it goes into that last time it feels more epic yeah it's just it's just good songwriting it is it's a it's a fun way to bend the rules mm-hmm. i think again that's that's the thing that continued i think to astound me the most about learning about bach and about his songwriting was just his incredible ability to to do this kind of songwriting where he's he's technically playing by the rules yet he's also bending them to whatever will he wants yeah and then on top of that making it just melodically incredible yeah cuz i mean yeah. you have you it's you so have funny. artists that that will be rule benders but it's also really weird and you're just like I don't get what you're. I I I applaud the concept, but I don't like the song. Yeah, that wasn't an issue for Bach. Gosh, and just the fact that like he probably wrote this, like, like this is just one act. You know. Yeah, this is the one. This is just one movement. So he probably wrote this in an hour. Probably. <laughs> I, I believe he wrote this whenever he was uh Kapellmeister. Oh, okay. Um this before he went to Leipzig. 
because he was so he was still an incredibly prolific writer before he was still incredibly prolific before he went to Leipzig. Yeah, but he became even more prolific after that because he had to be. Man, because that's a lot of notes to write on that yeah. violin solo. Mm-hmm. Grant, you have anything to add? One of the things that really is standing out to me is the fact that rhythmically there's not much variation going on. I mean, a lot of the music that we have now, especially like a lot of metal stuff, rhythmically there's weird things that happen all over the place. But here it's like he's using the same rhythm over and over and over again. Well, that's another. It's it's just sounding fresh every time. It's another restriction of Rondo. There's there's a very specific way the melody and the rhythm has to be shaped. Hmm. You all, it's it's always has to be symmetrical. You got like it's if you've got a melody that rises, the next one has to fall. It's just Rondo is maybe the most restrictive form that you can write in. And again, it's just like I can see Bach kind of looking at it and go, challenge accepted. Yeah. But he's also very casually just doing it. Yeah. <laughs> he's just, he's like, oh, I'm just going to write whatever I want. And all I have mm-hmm. to do is obey these rules. Easy. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go ahead all and right. move on to the next one. Let's do it. So this is going to be our um, our purely keyboard piece. I had to have at least one of these because that's what, um, well, I guess we do have another keyboard only piece but it's very different um this one even though that we are hearing it on piano it was not composed for piano it was composed for the harpsichord but i figured but i really like this piano rendition so i decided to keep it and i was having a very hard time finding a good harpsichord recording on Mm-hmm. On Spotify, so I was just like, "Yeah, I'll just this this piano rendition sounds really good. I'm going to keep this." So this was a fugue. We talked about fugues, how they're uh, mostly structured around a central theme that is constantly woven in and out. So mm-hmm. the main theme of this fugue being that bum ba da 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 dum bum ba da da dum ba dum ba dum bum bum. Yeah. I remember the first time I listened to it and he, the the instructor had explained and I was just like, I don't hear it. I don't get it. And then he was gracious enough to like really break it down. And I was just like, oh, oh, I hear it. I hear it now. And it was because I remember I listened to it the first time. I was just like, that's it was OK. It was still when I was kind of biased against Bach. Yeah. It's one of the first things that I one of the first pieces in that course that they really deconstructed mm-hmm. and then by the end of the deconstruction i was just like i literally hear this completely differently you're gonna have to take us through it then yeah i'm not i outside of the central theme i still don't understand completely what's happening mm-hmm. but i at least understand the the workings of it um so you've got that that central theme and then you do have that um Whenever you have a fugue, you have to, um, the, you have to say how many voices it's for, because, in if it's a vocal, you would say how many voices are going to be singing. If it's for um, an orchestra, 
you'll have to say how many um, voices, how many instruments are going to be playing the central theme. If it's a keyboard, you would say, in this case, this is a fugue for uh, harpsichord three voices because that um, that central theme would be played three times. You've got that main one that plays by itself. Um, you, you could say that it's the uh, the soprano. And then the soprano starts playing the counter melody. And underneath it, you have a harmonized version of that central theme that's being played by the quote-unquote alto voice, so like in the middle of the piano. And then that starts playing the counter melody, and then you have the bass or the tenor that plays it. And it's like, I want to say it's like probably either an octave or two octaves lower than the original central theme. Wow. Well, so and then you get really into the same thing over and over again. But no, once it does that, it actually does not repeat that theme until uh, close to the end of the piece. No. Because then you go into what's called episodes. Episodes and restatements. And that's kind of like the uh, the exploration of the piece. You still take the central idea of the theme. In this case, this kind of this this almost dance like um, the way it was. I had it described to me was like imagine a ballerina that's constantly leaping up into the air. You've got these notes that are constantly jumping up in scale, yet done in such a way that it's very graceful. Yeah, thinking of a ballerina just just gliding through the air. It's very, it's a, it's almost a very, it's got a dance like quality to it. It's a fitting visual for the music as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when you have these episodes, you want to keep that same idea, but, but not use the main central theme. Mm. The central theme is, it's again, and the way they explain it is you don't want to say a central motif or a central melody, it's a central theme theme because it's not just the melody but the yeah. the idea behind the melody what that melody represents and that's what influences all the melodies that come through in the episodes after yeah it and helps so, even on this piece to like for you to try to listen for the boom bup, boom bup, boom bup, you know mm-hmm. like that idea being rephrased everywhere it's easier to be like oh that's that melodic thing because then you just hear it everywhere the boom bup, boom bup, boom bup. Mm-hmm. And the the whole point of a fugue is that if you wrote it well enough, you, the listener will not be able to tell when one segment ends and the next begins. The whole point of it is that it's supposed to be very seamless and very tight. Yeah. And so if you can tell that, oh, well they just went to the next episode or there's the next restatement, then you kind of failed at writing a good fugue. So there's three voices here, you said. Uh-huh. And it's all performed on one keyboard by one individual. Yes. Yeah, so again, that doesn't mean that there's always three parts at any time being played. It, it really is going to tell you how many um, theme uh, variations there's going to be. So like I said, how there's, you've got the theme played in the soprano voice, the the alto voice, and the tenor voice. 
and um, but I mean, he's only got two hands, so he's not going to be playing. It just means that that's how many uh, times that the central idea is going to be repeated in the okay. opening theme and in the closing theme. Because when you get around to the end, you get a perfect restatement of that theme. Mm-hmm. And again, with the fugue, it's going to take you in a lot of very interesting ways. And that, that recapitulation is meant to be like this reset. Yeah, man. And so, listening, listening to the, the lower harmonies, cause I'm listening to it right now and I keep like just restarting it. And then whenever the other harmony comes in, just listening that it's like, Oh, that just repeated what the main melody did. Yeah. It's, it's like, Oh, that, that just repeated what the main melody did again. But then that, that, the, like the A melody, like if the A melody was the boom, 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 like okay, now the A melody shifts to the lower thing, and now a B melody comes mm-hmm. in. You know. Yep. So yeah, that's it, the counterpoint melody. And and then it's like okay, now there's a C melody that comes in. You know, the boom, ba dum, ba dum, ba dum is like the C melody. And the is the B melody almost. Well, and then just yeah. hearing how all that stuff is just like, oh, they're just switching everything between parts. Yeah, it's it's all about layering, using um, using what you have, and 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 this is where I think Yes gets their um, their philosophy of wasting no bit of melodic. Uh, ammunition yeah that they use every part of the buffalo mm-hmm. now bach i mean he squeezed every single possible musical expression out of that very simple melody mm-hmm. i mean you see it's almost absurdly simple i feel like this is a music that is easier appreciated red that sounds so weird to say no, I know what you mean. Because it's like, seen... if, if I had all this laid out, I could literally go through with like a yellow highlighter and be like, here's the theme here, here's the A theme here, here's the A theme here, here's here, 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 here. here mm-hmm. Blue highlighter, here's the B theme here, 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 and here. And like visually seeing it laid out, because my ears, because he's a good fugue writer, like, because it's hard to hear the transitions. Like my ears having a hard time, like, picking out everything but my eyes could pick it out i've yeah. seen i've seen videos of people go through uh, some of box fugues and they would do that and they would have blurs of the melody of like each voicing yep and then through that they would highlight you know the different sections of this is actually the same section you know played here just in a different you know major mode or slightly different you know this that and the other and it's really interesting because it's some of those fugues, like the melody itself almost never stops. Oh yeah. There's never, just, there's never a moment where it stops to breathe. Right. And, and like even, even that main theme sometimes, maybe, maybe not all of them, but it just like everywhere throughout the entire piece, you can track that initial idea. just going through the whole thing, whether it's in a different, you know, completely different form, it's still recognizable on paper, but your ear can't quite get it. Mm-hmm. It's almost like 
somebody, you know, came up with a melody and then rolled the dice and it's like, oh, it's going to be starting on this note now, you know, <laughs> like completely random, but scientific, but also a really exact art form. It takes a lot of brain power and a lot of heart. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, I think we should go ahead and move on to the next one. Unless you guys had anything else you wanted to, we could be on that for a long time. We really yeah, could, and, and I don't, I don't want to overkill some of these songs. Yes, yeah. um, we're going to go to another concerto, the sad one. Now, this is actually the same concerto as the one that we heard in, uh, earlier in the set, but it's the second movement. Ooh! So imagine. Uh, and the first movement is incredible as well. Um, I just didn't have a place to put it. Mm-hmm. Now, it's like I don't want to use three movements from the same concerto. But when I heard this second movement, I was just like, oh, I've got to get this in the set somewhere. And you Im- imagine hearing this and it ends and then it goes into that third movement. Oh, yeah. How, Whoa, yeah. Just how crazy that would be. Yeah, man, this is so, so like broody. Yes, because um, the the first movement is also just very upbeat. It's very joyful and um, and it's not as fast, but it's like a seven minute, just like full of life, happy movement. And but he also takes it to a lot of strange and kind of dark places at times it's a the first that first movement is actually a brilliant use of like how i talked about how he would intentionally write himself into a corner yeah and then he would use some musical wizardry to get himself out of it and those dark moments actually foreshadow what the second movement would sound like hmm Dude, some of the chords in here, like, cause it's it's like it's like going, and then everything comes in on this like weird diminished chord thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh man, if you're noticing the diminished now, just wait. <laughs> of course, you've already heard it, but we're gonna just movie magic. Just wait, you know. <laughs> yeah. So um, this is written in gap form. No, which is a which is a bit of a a vague form. Pretty much the whole point of that is that you can kind of write in whatever structure you want, but you have to have these these dramatic pauses in between melodic statements. Oh, and that's why you have these moments where it almost feels like the music just stops. Yeah, it, whenever that happened the first time I heard it, I was I like almost stopped breathing. I was just like, oh. <laughs> And then and, again, it was still like broody. And I was just like, whoa, like using silence as its own musical uh-huh. device. And thing is, is that gap form is what he uses in the first movement, too. Oh, oh, that's cool. And he that's actually how he gets out of the corner that he writes himself into. He uses just a longer gap and then just goes right into the second movement. Well, he well, no, he uses it to recapitulate back to the main theme. Oh, yeah. But it's because he he uses a couple of smaller gaps earlier in the movement, and that's how he 
lets the audience know that this is a gap structure. Mm -hmm. And then he takes you into this place where it gets so weird that you're just like, okay, there's, he, he made a mistake. He can't get out. And then he uses the gap as a way to get back to the main theme. It goes back to the, no, technically I did. I was in gap form technically. Yep. I didn't do anything (laughs) wrong. Yep. But then also, like, right after that theme is over, it ends, and it goes into this. And it's just, like, it's it's so well-conceived. Yeah. And it's just, there's, it's, it's constant big brain moments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. yeah, that's true. It's like, yeah, you can applaud Beethoven and all for for coming up with stuff that's just so bonkers wild that it's had that breaks the rules but there's almost a even bigger cleverness on using the rules that you're given and just doing unexpected things with them mm-hmm. yeah it's like you break the format within the format uh-huh by keeping the format yeah so that if if there's anything that I'm I'm wanting to just hammer away at this, it's that concept because I think that that's actually really where where Bach's brilliance lies. Yeah, is his ability to to outthink the system. Yeah, without well, it's like it's like telling a painter you can only use these two colors in this painting, and then you combine the colors, and it's like well, technically, mm-hmm. I did the same two colors. Just yeah, ways and different shades of those things, and based mm-hmm. on what it's like, screw you, I'm gonna use whatever colors I want. It's like that's you cool. can't tell me what colors I can't use, yeah. which is it's technically cool and it's really rebel feeling. Uh-huh. But I agree with you. There's also a beauty in just being like, okay, I'll use your colors, I'll do what you say, and it, and it just coming out as something just so different. And it's like, what did you do? You broke the rules, and it's like, no, I did not. I did not break the rules. Here, let me show you how I use these two colors. Yeah, it's almost kind of more rebellious if you think about it. Yeah, it's very cheeky. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, you got to imagine that he did feel some frustration. Yeah, and this was almost like his way of. I of... feel like he almost probably because he, like with Beethoven, like he, it's like he could have maybe done that like he was probably looking at it and because at the time like nobody above him saw you know like he probably did write some stuff that was crazy off the ball or off the wall you know for that other guy but then he kind of gets into the job where it's like oh nope you need to do this and you need to write this way and he kind of forced to play by the rules you know yeah more there there were stricter repercussions yeah, and so he was like, well, this is my way then to do it this way. Because I feel like if if he would have been in a place where he could have, like, if someone would have said, hey, just write whatever you want, you know, then... Yeah, who knows what kind of music we would have yeah. done. But to know, it's like, no, I need a church service this week. Do not write anything, you know crazy off the wall like you normally would play within these rules why don't you write more like this person why don't you do more stuff like this and that's what everyone is kind of and he has like 12 kids you know yeah finding his way to have his own creative voice within kind of like a gun to your head like don't be 
I mean, kind of don't be creative, you know, and uh-huh. finding, finding the way through to still be like, holy crap, like, you know. It's knowing, knowing an artist's circumstance is so important. That's why I stress it so much and go through the, all the history. It's just like you really don't understand why a, com- a composer or an artist or a band writes the way they do until you understand that that part of their life. Yeah. But anyway, back to the piece. Um, I mean, there's there's not a whole lot like I can go into as far as like the crazy theory. This is just like a brooding, well constructed piece. Yeah. There's not a ton of you know pomp. It's just good. Oh. It's it's. I wanted to have something that just really showed the restraint of Bach, mm-hmm. as well as to to kind of really in a mood way transition us from the previous song to the next song. The classic song for transition mm-hmm. moment. Yep. It Grant, do you have anything to add? This next bad boy. I am I am so excited to try to restrain myself from talking too much about this one. This next so. song. This 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 song number five, uh, Takata and Fugue. Oh yeah. So this is this is the the song that as soon as you hear it, you're like, oh, I've heard that. Yep. This is the and bad guy song. song, guys. The bad guy song. That means something <laughs> different today. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like this, I. For as well known as Bach is, this is really, I would say, the only piece of his that has like that universal familiarity. And I think that was one of the things that had like kind of I didn't like about Bach originally because I was like, listen, I was just like, I don't know any of these. But I like go to Mozart and she's like, I can find at least 10 different Mozart pieces that are like public consciousness. Same thing with Beethoven. And, you know, I was and it was just like all Box got is this this weird organ evil song. Oh, but it's <laughs> so good. This is one of those songs that the every time I listen to it, like my appreciation grew so much. Yep. Me too. So I, I do like to imagine him playing it though. Oh yeah. yeah. I don't I don't know how anyone at that time could have played this. And probably even still a lot of people today probably don't play it exactly the way he would have played it. Um, As the name suggests, this is really kind of like two songs meshed together. You've got this very vague, unspecific term of Takata. Takata pretty much just means performance piece. And so you've got the You've got that first that where it goes the yeah, and like you could say like the first like minute and a half to two minutes is the Takata part, and it becomes the fugue section once it starts going into the uh when it's like you've got the you've got the that constant like um flooring of that of the bass note and you've got the melody playing. And it starts moving to the so that all is the fugue section. Yeah. Uh, the Takata though is that's that's the famous part. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, good lord. I mean, the way that he builds on all those chords. 
And the whole thing, it starts off in D minor, but then he like resolves to a D major chord. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's... My I mean, favorite part is the, uh, like, I think it's at, like, the two-minute and 40-second mark for everybody else that's listening. Like, that, whenever he, after he goes back to that, like, instead of resolving on the major, it's the minor, the... Like, that, just that melody line with the... That quick little thing, because yeah. you, you think he's going to do the chord. Yeah. And then he does that that little run first, and then resolves it. Yeah. Yeah, he's it's that whole Takata is an exercise in subverting expectation. Yeah, it does so well. I I have never listened to the rest of this song though. Most yeah, people neither. don't. Me neither. I remember being in um, my eighth grade music class, and our teacher would have us identify, you know, at least one song from, uh, you know, a composer you know, these famous composers from all these periods that we're going through now. And um, for the Bach piece, it was this one, but she'd always play up until that D major chord. So I never heard anything after that. And I listened, I mean, maybe probably two minutes, but I didn't have the full appreciation for like really music in general at that point. I was kind of just into yeah randy Rhodes, let's go ozzy osbourne woo crazy train guitar solos you know i was in a big randy Rhodes phase at that point so i didn't really get it but finally getting the opportunity to i guess be forced to listen to it make me love it so much more and pick out all the little nuances that he's doing like about halfway through he's pushing in and pulling out the different um sliders that control the sound of the organ while he's playing it so it gives a different feel so he can go from the really big chords yeah. to the really you know quiet almost and then he changes modes to like a major mode yeah yeah and, and there's there's just re- ah my gosh i could yeah. go on and on but the harmonic minor feel of it too just adds to the he just messes. nature i think that's the interesting thing about this fugue is that like it's less of the fugue that we heard before where it's like, oh, let's all these different parts. And it's more like him taking the same melodic concept and then just switching it between all these different kinds of modes. And he's just, he's just effing with the melody the entire time, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it always bothered me though listening to it because when you would play that and then I was just like I've heard that in some other song somewhere and I couldn't figure it out for the longest time and then finally it dawned on me that the entire ending of Dream Theater's uh, stream of consciousness uh, instrumental is a ripoff of the fugue section of this song when it goes to the guitar, the it's the same chords, it's the same basic melody. Um, which, if you're unfamiliar with that song, you should compare them. I will do that now. I'm actually not recognizing it. I'm not very familiar with that song. I used to be more familiar with it, but that's a that's a top ten dream theater song in my opinion. It's really good. I'm just not 
I'm not placing what you're saying. It's that whole ending section. It's it's the it's it's very melodically similar. I I honestly would be surprised if they weren't inspired by. This. Yeah. Because it's 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 eerily similar. I I completely believe it. I mean, there's 100% many reasons to suspect that they were yeah. influenced by someone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, and I mean, just you start to get to the end of that piece, and it just, I mean, it starts to just smack yeah. you in the face. You want to talk, I mean, initially when you start listening to it, like you're entrapped, and then you look and see that it's nine minutes long, and it's just organ, and it's easy to think, oh, no, this is just going to be nine minutes of what's traditionally a very abrasive and unpleasant instrument to listen to. Yeah. And organs are not what people usually identify with a very nice sounding, at least because usually a lot of people don't play it correctly. <laughs> and I'm, but I mean, you just, you get enwrapped in it. And by the end, it's just, and he, again, he takes that theme of the Takata. Every time you think that it's over, he takes it somewhere else. He, yeah, man. like he trick endings you like three different times. Yeah, that's right. But but every time he does it, it doesn't feel like it's just a simple bait and switch. It feels like the song had to go there. Mm-hmm. And um, I just so at I the think... very end, whenever he does the trick ending, and then he just goes on that blitz. Yes. That's the particular one that I was thinking of. I think that's the most dramatic one. Uh, but I mean, it's he does a really great job of pacing. Because if you're going to write a 10-minute organ piece, you got to make sure that it's paced well. Yeah. And I mean, the fact that you can that you can build on top of one of the most dramatic introductions to a song ever is just again it just it speaks to the brilliant songwriting because most people if they write an intro like that they're not going to be able to top it later yeah Mm -hmm. it's again it's almost you feel like you could write yourself into a corner with an intro like that there's and there's so many other gems just in this song just hidden and the more you listen to it, the more you realize that, like, every single moment, even yeah, for a performance, a piece, it's like every, every single moment's just crafted perfectly. Mm-hmm. I, I think that there, if there's a reason why this piece has, has endured, it, it very well might be his masterwork. No, I think it is. Definitely, I would say it's his masterwork in the keyboard area. Yeah. Yeah, gosh, there's just so much and that ending is massive. Yeah, when it goes to the um uh what is it, B flat major, just all of a sudden it's just like, okay, that sounds awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like that minor three and then it's like four out of nowhere, you're just like, What? <laughs> so I kind of like half expected him to end on a major chord, though. 
and he doesn't. It's just minor. This is this minor. is the vampire song. You can't end on a major chord. Funny enough, though, this uh, I heard it described that if he had known that this would have been used as a villain song, he probably would have been horrified. Right. Because <laughs> this was this was this was a, a because I mean, if you're gonna play this on organ, you're not gonna play it outside of a church setting. So this would have been played at church. Yeah. So he's because I mean, yeah, you can't you can't say, hey, come to the come to the concert hall because there's an organ. You can't t- carry an organ to a different venue. Yeah, that's built into the actual foundation yeah. of the building. <laughs> and you're yeah, definitely going anywhere. Even, even though it's it's less strict than it was in Catholic, you're not going to say, hey, come check out this secular piece at the church. Yeah. I mean, this is something that would have been played at church. And so, of course, he's Same not... as that first song. Can you imagine going to church one week and just hearing this? No, that would have... I mean, it's just... It's mind-boggling. Um, Do you think you only ever played this once? I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, he it's, wrote it's so very much difficult. stuff. It's very possible that it's like, he wrote this, and this was just like a random week of church. I don't know. It sounds to me like it's one of those project songs that he did for himself. This was this written during about. his Kapellmeister days. So this would have been for the church. Yeah. Man. This literally could have just been like, it's a random Tuesday and I got to write something for this weekend and I'll just do it myself. I'll just do it on Oregon because I don't want to have to write anything for everybody. <laughs> yeah. I mean... Honestly, that I have a really, really is busy, what it could have been. I have a really busy town meeting this week and a birthday for my kids, so I'm just going <laughs> to write something that I can just play on organ. <laughs> but oh, I'm, still, I'm still going to make sure that it's awesome. Can you imagine if, if like, you could meet him today and it's like, dude, how, how did you write that? And he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I don't remember... Oh, anything. you mean that deep track that I just threw yeah. away one day? Yeah. yeah. He's like, oh, that thing, I wrote that on my on a weekend. Um, you I was know. bored. Yeah, I just, and, and, you know, I was really lucky because it just came together so easily, so I had a little bit more time to actually write for the Christmas show that was coming up. It's just like, are you kidding me? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I wonder what he would have said his best piece was, because... It's just so interesting because, like what you said, it's like you go back and you slave over all the documents, and it's like, dang, this one's incredible. But, like, if anyone did that with anyone else's, like, that was alive right now, like Bruno Mars, you know, like, you don't get to know how well received any of it was, you know, and you, and someone that's never heard a Bruno Mars song before in their entire life doesn't, has no idea who it is. It's like, have them rank it, you know? Yeah. That's what everyone's doing with. Bach, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> could have just been a random Tuesday for him. And he just <laughs> writes one of the most enduring pieces of music of all time. I mean, amen. <laughs> oh, and so we come to the to the grand conclusion. I have emotional. So this is, in my opinion, this is one of the strongest ending song moments 
And it's mainly because I was so engrossed in uh, Takata and Fugue in D minor. And that big minor chord hits me in the face like a truck. And then it goes silent. And, and the, on the podcast, for everyone that, that go listen to the podcast, or go listen to the Spotify playlist. So it just, it's silent for about 10 seconds. And then this choir comes in with this epic, like epic, epic melody. And it feels so good in contrast to the Toccata and Fugue in D minor that whenever I heard it, like it, we, we always talk about like a catharsis moment. Mm-hmm. It's like the, the tension that song five created in me, everything about that tension was released in the last song. And so I, I give it away already, but like whenever we have to pick our favorite song, I was like, oh yeah, definitely song five is going to be it. And then I got to the end and I was like, wow, that was dark. And then this happens and I was like, holy crap. This is a, I don't know if it's triumphal because it, it, is. it is, or I don't know if it's just in the stark comparison to Takata and Fugan D minor, you know, or if that just elevates it. Well, it's, it's, it's all working in context. So I want you to look at the name of the last song and then look at the name of the first song. I don't know how I can see the, because it's the same, right? Yeah, so this is from the same cantata. This is the ending piece of that cantata. So the other reason why this is going to subliminally feel so triumphant for you is because this is the same melody that plays in the first movement of that cantata. Wow. So not Yep. Wait, this is... Wait, uh of song one yep when that the the same um the same vocal melody that comes in when the when the vocals first come in on uh when the, the first when the groom comes technically like yeah so what this does is this is this is a pure unadulterated rendition of the melody because this is sung very straight it's yeah you don't have lots of like crazy tricks this is just pure glory let me and let me just read to you what the translation says may gloria be sung to you with the tongues of men and angels with harps and with cymbals the gates are made of 12 pearls in your city we are companions of the angels on high around your throne no eye has ever perceived no ear has ever heard such joy Therefore, we are joyful. Hooray, hooray, forever in sweet rejoicing. Are you sure this song is not the inspiration for the crown him with many crowns hymn? It sounds so similar. It it could be. I didn't come across that in my research. Okay. Because... My uh, grandparents are Methodist, and we'd go there every Easter, and they mm-hmm. would sing that song every time. And so, of course, that song's associated with large mm-hmm. church service, and there's some melodies in here that are just so similar. I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe it's coincidental, but man. 
So yeah, there's there's lots of different things working together to make this song work as the finals. You've got That's yes, true. you've got that huge contrast between uh, song five and song six. You have the return, the recapitulation from song one, bringing the set full circle. And then, of course, you just have the fact that this just in of itself is so glorious and so powerful. It feels like it almost feels like this. It's this grand declaration of yeah. finality. Yep. Because it's only like two and a half minutes long. Yeah, it's short. But it's a song. Yeah, but it's 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 like you you almost like go through the darkness of hell. And then you come out on the other side and it's just this big celebration. So good. It was a good set. And the choir is ridiculous. But again, listen again, because this is in German. If you notice every, like I, like I was describing earlier, every note has its own syllable. It's very, it's, it's not again. You're not going to have the this very operatic like. It's it's more choral based. Sing sing songable. Mm-hmm. You can imagine that if they had the text with them, the whole congregation could have sung together at this point. Yeah, because because they he's using that 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 pure melody. And of course, he's adding you know tons of great harmony on top of it and giving it this grand feeling. But he didn't alter it really. This yeah. is this is the moment that probably everyone in the congregation would have recognized and joined in on. And what a powerful moment that probably would have been. That is super awesome to think about. <laughs> wow. And and you just they they had Bach standing there conducting the whole thing, and that just again they probably still didn't even realize what a beautiful thing that would have been. And literally, it's just an well, they definitely didn't appreciate because it's just like another Sunday with Bach. Yeah, like this would have never been heard ever again. Hmm. <laughs> Like just... we have listened to this probably more than Bach has. Oh, absolutely. Like it's those are the things that it kind of breaks your mind a little bit that something this incredible was played one time in his life. Yeah. It's just it's startling. And yet it 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 continues to reverberate through time. Man. That is crazy. I wish I was that good of a composer that I could just write a whole, you know, 30 minutes worth of music in a week and people 400 years after me are, you know, analyzing it and every little detail. But, you know, the fact that we're doing that just shows the fact that he had that attention to detail. Even with the quantity, there was also the quality. And that's the sign of a true musical genius. Mm Mm-hmm. And the fact that he was discovered at a later period. Yeah, you know, that's, that's even Someone weird. went back and was like, wait a second. Hey, everybody, look at this. Like, we missed this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that's going to give us a good segue to get into final thoughts. So we're going to take another break here. When we come back, we're going to give our final thoughts about Bach and then wrap this episode up. So stay tuned. 
We'll be right back. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Ethan. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just got done with our six-song set talking about uh, Johann Sebastian Bach. Um, The names are all German, and so I don't want to go and pronounce them because you probably wouldn't even remember the name if I did. But go into the link in the description of the episode. Go to the Spotify (laughs) playlist. uh, Go check out the songs uh, to get the same level of appreciation because we are about to talk about our final thoughts at the beginning. We give our, uh, you heard, heard our number, you heard where we came from, and now it's time after we've listened to the songs, after we've discussed uh, Box Life, it's time to give our new opinion. So, uh, Grant, as always, final thoughts go. Man, let me tell you, this set made me think about a lot of different things i mean a the music conjures up these you know grandiose images of you know evil in the case of takata and fugue and this wonderful gloriousness in the case of our first and final songs Uh, but it also makes you think about just what good music is you know i mean we talk about uh bands who try to push the limits and break the rules a lot and it was great to talk about a composer that, you know, fit in the rules and really did them well. And that's kind of, you know, commendable. It's also really interesting to hear about all the things he had going on in his life. You know, that makes the music that much more impressive. Uh, and the fact that he produced so much, um, man. And the whole set played out like, you know, singularity. You know, where we started off with this something really pure and then we descended into the depths of hell and then came back triumphant, you know. I thought that was a really good set. And and to show all of the diverse ways that he writes, all the different things that he does. I enjoyed the fugues the most, I think. Uh, maybe that's just because they tend to be more performance-based mm-hmm. and... You know, I kind of like a good performance piece sometimes. So if I were to, you know, suddenly get very, very interested in Bach over the next few days, I would be hunting down some of his fugues, which probably will happen. So um, I'll have to say that, you know, I don't, once again, I don't have the big back catalog, but I think I could safely put myself at a seven knowing enough about his life, knowing enough about these songs um, to say, man, I really respect him as a person, as a musician and as a composer, I guess musician, composer, same thing, but um, yeah, that's kind of where I stand now. Just a lot of thoughts. So Ethan, I I would say I would re-rank because if I would have started maybe at a four or five-ish I would probably put myself at a six now maybe just because I don't even know where I would go to like other than just going to Spotify and then just like hitting shuffle on on box page you know i don't really really even know how i would dig in to 
to more Bach. And I think it would have to be really specific for me to feel like, oh, I'm in like a really like a Bach mood, you know, just talking musically. I think outside of everything else musically, you look at Bach's life and it's just like, am I doing enough? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's just like this man wrote so and we say we're saying he wrote like a 30 minute thing a week. That's just for church. That's not counting if he ever wanted to do any other thing on the, you know, or anything with his personal life or any other secular music or any other, you know, the town hall meeting or anything else, you know. And so you look at him and it's just like, dang, this guy was a hustler. And then the other thing is, I mean, we know now, like, it's kind of like this podcast, like this podcast, we know it will endure. Like these recordings will be up for forever, you know, in some way, shape or form. He did not know that. He did not know that someone, you know, hundreds of years later would be listening to it, you know? Mm -hmm. And it goes back to what you said, like he had a, a more primitive, I say primitive, not in a bad way, but like a, a more core, like the reason why he worked so hard and the reason why he did everything and the reason that, he was okay for his songs to just be played one time, you know, um, was deeper than just being like, Oh, I, I just want to change the world with my music, you know, cause he just kind of stayed in his town, you know, <laughs> he never made it to the point where he was like, I'm a big touring composer and my songs are played all over the world. You know, they were just played in one place <laughs> whenever he was alive. But so that's more my thing is like he just had a grit and a determination that is just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And I think that that brought the music more alive to me because I was just like in a weird kind of way, like Bach feels like a just a normal guy with like just a ton of willpower. You know? Mm-hmm. And I guess, yes, he's incredibly gifted, you know? Obviously he's incredibly gifted, but it's like in a weird, like different way. It's not just like you know, it's not just like from a child, he was a genius prodigy and he had all these handouts and favors and everyone loved him because he was so good. You know, it's like he was good, but like no one thought that he was good. You know, it's he had a, to he had to really work for every single little inch of ground. Yeah. And it's like there we, we're looking at this now, but like there are other church music directors from that time that were also writing things every week you know like if that was the standard but it's like the fact that he's like no 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 like because we don't know any of the other guys that were doing stuff like that you know (laughs) because it was probably all just stock I mean but for him to take it that seriously and to be like I know I have to write something new every week but I'm not going to skimp on it you know I'm truly going to write something new every week Mm-hmm. so more from like that mentality it's just like he's just a workhorse it's inspired so i yes that's that's my thing um and that i think if beethoven is like the you know the pioneer perfectionist like you know kind of like you think of steve jobs you know and beethoven is like in the same category like yelling at people throwing stuff around just like it has to be perfect it has to be new it has to be my vision um Bach is like in this different category of just like 
he's like a weird like every man's man he's <laughs> the big yeah it's just like he's just gonna do his thing and he's gonna wake up at the same time every day and go to work at the same time every day and make something incredible and then go home and you know it's just like he just put in the hours he's gonna write a brilliant piece of music and then the town council is gonna tell him well, we didn't like that part <laughs> uh, yeah honestly that probably happened to him a lot yeah but so so where so you would say that I'm probably a sick I'm a six now with the music, but I think that's more of a classical music bias still, even though I've I, got I, a I have a, a massive appreciation for for classical music. I just don't I'm not at the point right now where it's like, hmm, like I'm just gonna turn on I just feel like listening to some Bach, which Lucas, you might be there because I know we talked about someone a little while ago. I think it was Handel. Where you're just like, yeah, I'm just gonna listen to some handle. I'm not there yet, where it's just like, oh yeah, I need to listen to, you know, some classical music right now. Yeah, as far as not knowing where to go, I've I've got an album that I can recommend you. Sweet. The one that that Takata and Few comes from. It's just it's the it's fifty best. Mm-hmm. And so it's just like it's like a greatest hits compilation. Oh, that's awesome. I feel like that. That's like because <laughs> there's there's so many things. I think there's 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 close to a thousand I think surviving works of Bach. That's ridiculous. Are you glad you didn't have to rank this? And that's all the stuff that survived. Right. There's reportedly like hundreds and hundreds of pieces that we will never hear because they weren't preserved. Yep. Um. So, I think that. I'm going to have the biggest jump in the history of this podcast because I started off it like a, yeah, and I have the the knowledge now of the back catalog to be able to go into the higher numbers. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it might be close to a nine. Wow! Because oh. not only did I grow to love Bach, but he might be my favorite composer now. Why? Who was it before? I would say it would have been Beethoven. Mm-hmm. What? There, what's why? What happened to beat him out? For me, it was when I when I realized what was going on, learning about the his approach. It literally was almost like going from seeing black and white to seeing color. Like all mm-hmm. of a sudden, all these songs just like there was this hidden beauty that like I just couldn't see. And then all of a sudden, it's just every single song I started to listen to, I was just like, this is incredible. I've never heard anything like this before. And it was on like every song. Every song. And it just, every single time I was just like, I'm not, it's, I'm not going to feel like this with every song. But literally it happened. Every single song I was just like, oh my gosh, this is brilliant. And... It was just I've I've never I would I would say the only other artist that I can compare this to would be maybe Springsteen, or I was in such a negative space to going to such an overwhelmingly positive yeah. one. Dang. Just because it was just I didn't get it, and I get it now, and then just also adding on top of like what you're saying, just being inspired by his resolve, his work ethic, his dedication 
that no matter what, he was not going to write anything that was not up to his standard. Mm -hmm. And, and not caring if he ever got any of the praise that he deserved. He knew that it was good. It was good enough for him. And that's all that mattered. Yeah. He, he was satisfied each time that he wrote that piece the very best that he could. And I think that that's an artistic measure worth chasing. Yep. And so just on every single level, on a purely musical level, on an enjoyment level, on an inspiration level, it hits everything. Yeah, man. So, I mean, I just, I don't know how much better it can be. (laughs) That's, that's the jump. That's a full five points right there. Yeah, that that is the biggest jump that we've had. Yeah, Springsteen might have been. I don't think you got up to a nine though. No, I probably got up to like an eight. But I also might have been a three. <laughs> you, <I can't. laughs> we don't keep track of the points. <laughs> no, but. That's that's our episode. Thank you guys uh, so much for listening. Um, unfortunately, we do have a bit of sad news. This is going to be, or this was Ethan Scott's last episode with us. Uh, so sad. I know it's it's so sad that you're going to be leaving. Um, you've got a lot of cool things that you're going off to do though, and we're going to hope that this is not a goodbye, but just a see you later. Bach you'll come back to us at some me. point. Bach has inspired me because with all the stuff got, I got going on with the fam with family and stuff, it's just little short breather. But if I'm if I'm gonna pull a Bach, you know, I'll just do everything somehow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, be like Bach needs to be a shirt. Yeah, for real. But we're gonna miss you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the perspective that you've added. And for for inspiring the bad music podcast, I mean that would uh, yes, the, that wouldn't have existed secret. without you. I remember, like within the first two weeks, I was like, you were like, man, we need like more patrons, and I was like, what if we just talked about how bad music was? And, it, and you were immediately like, that's genius. <laughs> and, like <laughs> literally the next week, it's like we're doing it. Yep, so, I was ranking all the songs anyway, so I knew. What yeah, they- I was like, don't you already know what the worst songs are? You're like, I mean, yeah. I was like, yeah. It's only 30 more minutes. And thus it was born. So. And thus it was born, yeah. I'll definitely be back for the tournament. Yes, for sure. That'll for be sure good. I'll make time for the tournament. Because that's going to be fun. That's the the big boy. Yep. You invested too much. You invested half into that one. Yeah, I'm yeah, I'm I'm full on, on in the tournament. I'm going to get people to start betting money on it. <laughs> oh man well um to everyone that's listening thank you so much for listening and continuing to support us make sure that uh you hit the subscribe button we have new episodes every monday morning at midnight um next week man ethan you're gonna be missing out a good one to, to talk about but we're gonna be talking about um a great, great live record. So make sure that you tune in next week to hear all about 
uh, what artist and what record we're going to be talking about. And make sure you follow us on Facebook, on on Instagram. We've got a lot of cool stuff going on there. A lot of uh, stuff where we're trying to get you guys involved and hear your opinions. That's the best way also to let us know what artist you want us to cover in the future. And make sure that you check out both the links in the description of the episode. One of them takes you to the Spotify playlist where you can listen to all the songs. And the other one will take you to our Patreon page where you can get access to episodes early as well as the aforementioned Bad Music Podcast segment. And that's it. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. I'm Ethan. Keep on listening to good music. Good music.